0: M-S-W Media So Renato, in the last week we saw the horrific beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police officers This was completely caught on video Does that mean that this is going to be an easy case to prosecute?
1: It's complicated (laughs) I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst.
0: And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst.
1: And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So Asha, I... I don't know if we've ever seen a a beating or police brutality that was this um, disturbing and was caught on video from so many angles um, like this one was. I mean, it it was very difficult to watch.
0: Yeah. And Renato, full disclosure, I've read a lot about the case, including in the aftermath of the video being released and people's descriptions of it, but I... Could not bring myself to watch the video to be honest with you.
1: yeah, I've watched a lot of it. Uh, I did I don't know if I've watched everything. um I've watched um, body cam and then there's a surveillance footage from across the yeah the, the telephone street.
0: pole. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and that really is what um, is most revealing. You know one thing that I think is interesting is if you know one thing I tried to do was imagine that there's only the body cam footage. Um, you know, and, and if there was only the body cam footage, I actually think this, this would have been a, a much more difficult case to prosecute because you can make a lot of arguments about what they can see and what they can't see at different points of time. There's your visions obscured. I actually think it's the surveillance footage from across the street that is much more telling about the scene. Um, But, you know, even so, um, I would not be surprised um, if there's a very vigorous defense from some of these officers.
0: And what would the defense be? So in a shooting case, which, which, you know, is sort of this nanosecond type of response, right? And the law gives a lot of latitude to the subjective perceptions of the police officer if they have a reasonable belief that, you know, they're... Life is in danger, or this other person is about to use deadly force, and then the, the gun is fired. This was an ongoing beating, right. um, and it was five officers on one. I think there were Correct. even more at the scene. I, so what would be the defense in this case? It's not – in in, the, in law enforcement, they say action beats reaction, right, which is why right. that – the your brain processing what it's seeing versus the response of firing the gun happens so quickly that, um, there's a, a time delay or a, kind of a cons- time constriction. Um, this seems to be fundamentally different than that type of situation.
1: I, I agree with that. I mean, it's certainly when there is, when there are shooting cases, um, like you said, I mean, the, 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 uh, argument is that, you know, you, are reacting to something and you don't know what the danger is. You thought you saw a gun and you did what you did. I think it's, it's, this is definitely a much more challenging case for the defense. I think one complicator that I'm going to put off to the side is, as you mentioned, there's so many people involved. And one, the the piece of it that I'll put to the side is one of them could flip or more of them could flip. In other words, I think a very viable, um, strategy for prosecutors is basically, try to pick off one or two of the the officers, give them a good deal in order to flip on the rest, and then that makes the rest of your case much easier. I do think if one of the officers testifies for the government and is like, yep, we all knew that we were going to murder somebody, we decided to murder this guy, that's just very difficult for the, the rest to overcome. So that would make it not as complicated um, because I think the jury is going to credit the testimony of one of the officers in that circumstance particularly because, you know, an officer is not like the typical flipper, like the typical flipper that I would put on the stand is like some sort of, you know, just hoodlum criminal, uh, whatever, you know, like I'm in, you know, I'm drug cartel kingpin who's trying to flip down on my couriers or whatever. This is like a police officer, but obviously someone in the same position. I I think, um, but I think otherwise, I mean, one thing I'll just say as a starting point that I don't know if our listeners will like to hear, but I think is a reality is that police officers start with this huge amount of credibility with the jury and it really exists. And, you know, I will say this as somebody who's been a prosecutor who used to investigate police officers, um, but, and has also been on the defense side uh, up against law enforcement. I mean, I, it is very hard to go up against law enforcement because, uh, the jury, I think, presumes that they're right, and so I think the the way the angles that I would be looking at on the defense side would be one of a few things. I mean, one thing they could do is plead to some lesser count and say, "Look, I did X, but I'm not a murderer." Okay, that's I think very viable uh, for these officers. They can say, "You didn't see," you know, what the the, the it's going to likely be built around what they you couldn't see. Like, hey, you didn't see this thing that happened beforehand or afterward, or this angle. You couldn't see what he was doing, Um, and you know maybe we overreacted in this way, but we were reacting to X, Y, Z that he did. Um, But I, you know, I certainly think, you know, the the focus is going to be on the more serious charge, right? Murder versus some. I think you you may need to concede. You may have. Um, you you may ultimately have a defense strategy that's gonna draw some concessions on they're they're gonna make some concessions and some of the easier to, to prove charges.
0: Yeah, and to clarify, when you say the like the defense will be able to capitalize on the fact that there were so many people, do you mean that because they can coordinate their story unless someone can flip. Is that what you're saying?
1: That's right. They'll have a coordinated if they're all on the same side and they're all telling a consistent story. Then I do think that's helpful uh, for the defense that the hard part with the defense, when there's multiple defendants is usually the government can pit them against one another.
0: Yeah.
1: And there's an incentive to point the finger like, Hey, I was just following the lead of that guy um, who, you know, he's the real bad guy. Cause you, you want, the jury's going to want to blame somebody, but if they can all stick together um, which happens a lot of times, police officers, there's definitely, I think a, uh, a code of 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 conformity there, where they all stay on the same side. I think there's there it, the defense is harder than you might think. I'm not saying that this isn't a a righteous prosecution. I'm not saying that the what the officers did was right. I'm just explaining to you why it's difficult to get convictions against police officers. Because I think a lot of folks in the public are like, why aren't there these people convicted, or why do they present cases to grand juries and they don't return indictments? I'm trying to under to. Explain that a little bit.
0: Yeah. Do you think that the inherent credibility of law enforcement has eroded in the last several years, especially since George Floyd, that's part A of my question, and B, that the existence of video means that one does not have to rely entirely on... The account provided by the law enforcement officer, but are able to draw conclusions based on what they see with their own eyes. And I think the George Floyd case was an example of this, right? Like, I mean, you, you know, it was hard to deny exactly what was happening um, as these officers you know, knelt on him as he was crying for help. So I'm wondering, you know, um, whether that part of the challenge may, may be less now than perhaps you know even even 5 years ago.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think the video is the main the main change there. I I was in I was a prosecutor back when there was a lot of discussion about whether there should be body cams and the amount of resistance in law enforcement that included in the FBI. I mean the amount of resistance was a unbelievable. Um, I mean, we had a discussion, you know, in, uh, you know, internally in federal law enforcement about recording interviews, too. It was a similar thing. Like, should we record interviews or not? And there's a lot of resistance to that. And I think there's no question that the recording, you know, that using body cams is a tremendous tool that is uh, being used to hold law enforcement accountable. I mean, I think let's just be real here. If there is no video, I mean, I was saying what it would be like if we didn't have the surveillance footage from across the street. But without body cams or surveillance footage, if this was just his say-so, or you know, he's not even around, they may not have ever even
0: uncovered what that these people may not have ever been arrested.
1: Yeah, these officers would have some story, like this guy was violent or he pulled a gun. Who knows what they would have said. And, you know, people would have chalked it up to it's impossible to prove. I mean, part of the typical thing with police officers, of course, is that you, force can be used in certain circumstances. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I think without video, this would have never happened. You know, when you mentioned the influence on juries, I mean, I think, you know, despite video, I think the influence on juries is uh, dependent on area. I mean, I think. um, you know, if you told I, I and I don't know what the jury pool is going to look like here, but it, let's say, you know, if you told me I'm going to have a very urban jury pool, that would be different than a jury pool. That's very whether it's rural or or suburban, because I think that there are still a lot of folks who will deify and, and the police and give them a lot of. Difference. Yeah, that's just. The yeah,
0: reality. I, I do think that public perception I mean, I'm always struck by this that this what this has been going on for decades. I mean, you know, this is really a part of the lived experience of many Black Americans in this country has been for you know many for a long time, and I think you know it's been in the shadows. And the advent of video. And social media, I mean, we talk about all the downsides of social media, disinformation, all this, but I think one of the ways in which it has been a very powerful uh, tool to shed light on things that were previously simply people, many people I think weren't aware of, and especially in terms of its pervasiveness, um, which, you know, I think will help in Building momentum for some significant changes in how law enforcement operates.
1: Yeah, I do think that that's more difficult than folks often give credit for. So, you know, uh, there has there is some. I know there's some debate over very minor uh, reforms, federal reforms that are bipartisan. I, I think uh, 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 Cory Booker and Tim Scott have a bill that they've worked on together that are very, I would say, very uh, relatively minor. I think one of the issues that makes this difficult and be interested in your thought on this is that you're dealing with like local police forces all Mm -hmm. across the country. Mm -hmm. There's not like, it's, it's like dealing with local school districts, right? Like every police force has got its own training. They have their own policies. They have their own procedures. I mean, one of the things that made this a lot better for the prosecution is the police chief was like, yeah, nope, uh, I'm not defending this at all. We're immediately getting out in front and taking swift action because a lot of times uh, it's hard. And I know in our circumstance, one of the things in Chicago that made it very difficult to investigate police officers is there was um, collectively bargained contract. And part of that, the police union's uh, deal was that, a police union representative would speak to the police officer before law enforcement. And it's like a special treatment. Like, can you believe, like if, if somebody is, let's say c- committed a, a parent killing and it's like, well, no, law enforcement's not allowed to interview that person. We have to let them speak to their own authorized representative. Um, but that's, you know, th- that sort of thing is not uniform, but it's, it's a problem on a local level.
0: And I think many Local police departments also have their own internal um, oversight or investigation who are, I think, often shunned by the rest of the department because they're seen internally as being, as sort of betraying this, this culture, which I think is why it's really important that there's also the potential for a federal investigation and prosecution. It looks like, as you said, in this case, the local police chief, is um, completely on board with moving forward. But I imagine that where there is resistance within the local police department, that vindicating the civil rights of the victim becomes paramount. And the fact that there's this additional layer of oversight is really important.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, Although I will say, you know, people are often looking for the feds to come in. I mean, Section 1983 is usually the vehicle to do so. And it requires a pretty substantial burden of proof for the government. And so I just think that the feds are not always able to prosecute most cases. And what they're prosecuting is not like murder. That's a state crime. That's not a federal crime. They're prosecuting like a violation of the civil rights of the victim. And while that's powerful and that is something that the federal government should be involved in, I mean, if you really wanted to do something you know, aggressive about this problem, you would create new federal crimes Mm -hmm. that were more straightforward to prove and that fit this and move more of those prosecutions federally. I do think the federal government is more capable of handling these prosecutions uh, than the state in part because state prosecutors have a relationship with the police department. Right. Just like when you're a federal prosecutor, you have a relationship with the FBI or DEA or whatever. Like it's harder for the state prosecutors to go hard at police officers.
0: Yeah. So even before that stage, I think there's a few, you know, problems also with this whole dispersed, decentralized system, which is, you know, I think there's a screening problem to begin with. Um, You know, these types of jobs attract people who are not suited (laughs) to be in these positions um and i think you know to not be able to adequately I, i had a question on twitter that was like what is it about training that turns people into this and i think there is definitely aspects of the police culture that can take weaker you know morally weak people and allow them to become complicit like we saw in the George Floyd case where they just stand by. But I think for the, you know, the people who truly are the um, perpetrators of this, I I really believe they're like this when they come in um, and that they are kind of predisposed to engaging in this type of behavior, um, which frankly to me seems sociopathic. Um but I do think there's also a training issue. I mean, in many of these cases, um, you know, I I just question like what what is exactly going on? I mean, in this particular case, for example, the pretext was that this was a reckless driving stop and why do you need five police officers to do a reckless driving stop? That this seems very odd to me. Um, and you know, and then there's the the there's also the that culture that um cone of silence where there is the implicit threat of being ostracized or punished i mean in in many ways it's um kind of a mini authoritarian culture, right where you know there there is a high cost to speaking up or speaking out or not conforming with what you're being told to do. And that piece has to change. In other words, to create mechanisms for whistleblowers to be protected and to actually be valued in, in that police culture.
1: Yeah. I I will say, I mean, look, I think it's really, you're asking some very like fundamental questions. I, I think, you know, a couple of thoughts I have. I mean, first of all, we obviously have to screen police very carefully because it's, it's a job where, the use of force is authorized against other people and any right. job where you have the power to control people's lives, to use force against them to potentially kill them is very serious, uh, matter. I think that, you know, there, I, I don't believe though that it's always, you know, how you come in that can create issues. I do think the experience that police officers have can be very challenging and very, um, can create a lot of, you know, challenge uh, mental health challenges, even for police officers. Yeah. I mean, I used to work alongside police officers when we would take state cases and, you know, some of what they went through, you know, in, uh, so I, I was a prosecutor in Chicago and, you know, on the South and West side, uh, you know, I used to take, we used to take certain cases, gun cases, that from the state and i I was blown away by it was essentially like like listen I would listen to the audio of their internal comms, their internal radio calls from these evenings and it was like a war zone. like they were basically like, mm-hmm. there's a shooting here. oh my God, there's something going on there It's like constantly like shootings all over the place and they're running around and they're just like constantly and afraid for their lives and it just, I do think over a period of time, that could be a very traumatic experience. And it may be that you know when you're in that world, that sometimes, just like there are of soldiers who will dehumanize their opponent, I think that maybe some of these uh, officers end up dehumanizing the people that they interact with, who of course, are not your combatants in a in a war. this is these are human beings in the United States. Citizens, uh, but they are viewing them as sort of not human just to kind of cope with what they're going through and what they're experiencing, which is hard.
0: Yeah. And that may be true, but I think then that points to the need for more like consistent uh, mental health evaluations of people who are in the type of jobs where they are on the front lines of the violent crime. You know that you're you're just you're talking about. I mean, um, I know in the FBI, for example, when agents go deep undercover into violent crime, uh, you know, gangs, white supremacist groups, these types of things that are probably incredibly disturbing and can have major psychological impacts, they're required to undergo periodic psychological evaluations to ensure that. They're basically not, you know, sort of blurring the line right. between, you know, this this role they're playing and and who they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a that's a good point to bring up, and I don't know that I've heard that part of it really discussed a lot.
1: Yeah, I I think I think you know when we think about solutions, we pivot from like, okay, this is really awful. I mean, no one. Should, you know, no one can justify a brutal murder of someone like this. Uh So, but when we move from that to like, how do we solve it? I um, mean, I do think at the federal, ideally, I mean, politically, it may not be possible, but ideally, this would happen at the federal level, and 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 certainly, new crimes are part of it. But pro- you know, prosecuting your way out of problems is generally it's not a real solution. Yeah, it's too yeah, late. exactly. You're not addressing the root problem. Like people are already dead. Right. So, um, I think, and, and people who are going to brutally murder someone like this, they're not necessarily going to always be thinking rationally about like, what are the potential consequences, yada, yada. I think you want to be thinking, like you said, mental health, um, uh, support, um, but also policies, procedures, training, things that will change cultures, which I don't think you can do like department by department, like you really, I think there needs to, you know, I think there's a lot of work that can be done at the state level to create standards. Um, you know, mm-hmm. police officers, you know, could, there could be like lots of licensing and accreditation and training requirements for police officers. Um, you know, more than there is now for that, that focuses on the use of force and the appropriate use of force. Uh, but also, uh, there could be work done at the federal level as well.
0: And I also think it's important to change who goes into these jobs. I mean, there's a self-selection problem, I think, Mm -hmm. right? These are – law enforcement is overwhelmingly male. Um, I think it's generally overwhelmingly white. And part of that is that that's the – that is the pipeline of people who go into those jobs. And I think one danger, I think, of creating – sort of adversarial mindset with regard to citizens and law enforcement is that, you know, you have people who could never imagine becoming a part of that. But in some ways, you do need that. Like, you need more women. You need more people of color. You need more, um, you know, I think people who come from those communities to be in those positions to, I think, truly affect change from the inside as well as externally.
1: Yeah indeed i think that that can only help although obviously as we saw in this case not a perfect solution
0: hi i'm moji alawodeal from the feminist buzzkills live pod the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape each week with co-hosts marie khan and liz winstead we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests
1: who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzz Kills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe because when BS is popping, we pop off. All right. So Asha, uh, I will give a peek behind the curtain here and say that one topic that I really wanted, this is something that I really wanted to talk to you about because I found so fascinating and I wanted to get your insight on this was seeing the reaction to the Paul Pelosi video and 911 call because it's very hard to listen to that 911 call and not have the very distinct conclusion that this man was scared for his life and was trying to keep a very hostile uh, person uh calm and there's also obviously a very brutal attack on the video and one thing I found absolutely fascinating, Asha, was to watch, you know, obviously there are some people on the right who are just doubling down on their narrative just because truth didn't matter to them. But there are actually some people on the right who I don't generally have a lot of respect for, people like Candace Owens, Candace Owens, and Mike Cernovich. I mean, these are like literally people who peddle in conspiracy theories, but who are like, oh, actually, when I see read that and listen to a 911 call, uh, this guy was legitimately afraid for his life. And it was so fascinating to see when they would tweet that out, their followers were like, they didn't believe them. They were like, they were all in on the lie, even when people that they would usually trust and usually follow were saying the exact opposite. And I'm curious as somebody who looks a lot at disinformation, how you react uh, to seeing this all unfold.
0: Yeah. So there's a, there's a few things. And just to be clear, the narrative, as I understand it, I mean, I really wasn't in the you know dark corners of of right-wing media when the paul pelosi thing happened but i think there was some implication that he was involved in um a relationship with the assailant and that this was sort of an altercation that came out of a lover's spat of some kind is that essentially what this was the, the story was
1: that's right. They point to the fact that like, well, he was in his underwear. Well, of course he was like in his out of bed, like he was awakened out of bed in his home. So that's not like entirely surprising. They'll say he had a drink in his hand. Like he's, you know, and they, they'll point to his DUI and they're basically insinuating, like you said, a relationship gone bad with the assailant.
0: Yeah. So I think there's a few things going on. Um, so the first is sort of that Mark Twain quote that a lie will get halfway around the world before the truth can put its boots on. And, you know, I think that's, that this is a perfect example of that, that it only takes, um, you know, a few people and frankly, a few influential people to put this narrative out there and it will travel like wildfire. And I will say Elon Musk was one of those people. And I think I remember seeing um, some analysis of how quickly this narrative traveled and there is a spike after Elon Musk, you know, said mm-hmm. I think there's more to the story or something like that right. and which I don't think he is one of the people who's ever retracted his position. Um and so th- the other thing is that once people believe something false, it is incredibly difficult to get them to back down because there's a lot of Cognitive dissonance that gets triggered when people are confronted with facts that um, contradict what they already believe, some of which involves their own self image, like, you know, I am not a person who believes in conspiracy theories or disinformation, (laughs) you know what I mean, and to, to acknowledge the facts in front of you requires that. Um The third thing is that many of these false narratives become aligned with partisan identity. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's, um, and in this case, especially, because this was about the husband of a political opponent, right? right. And so in many ways,, um, you know, believing this, it's not about the accuracy of the message. It's about signaling your loyalty. Mm -hmm. to your partisan tribe and this is where the people who are um focused on accuracy people who are like oh i was wrong about that what people what the followers are angry about is that they perceive that as disloyalty to the tribe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and 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 you're right what's really key here is it's actually really important that people like that as much as we don't like them do do that because precisely because they do have more credibility within this bubble than someone from the outside so joe biden saying you know no this was a this was a horrific attack on somebody they're going to dismiss that it's harder for them to dismiss it when Candace Owens or Mike Cernovich say it, they'll still get angry, but once you get a critical mass of elites who are challenge the narrative, it does give permission for people to then rethink their position.
1: Yeah. I, I So I follow a lot of right-wing uh, folks on Twitter, and I do it precisely. I'm not as knowledgeable about you as different disinformation, but I try to, as an amateur, kind of see what's going on in real time so I understand the understand the the bs uh, as it's happening in real time and i i found that fascinating here i think that you know what what's you know i do agree with you that elon musk definitely played a role it's interesting because i also saw him you know he claimed i saw in tweets after all of this came out that he apologized for and and deleted his tweet and apologized i've never seen the apology i've only seen him complaining that people didn't credit or focus on his apology i've not seen the apology which goes to the point here, right? I mean, what what people remember is him amplifying. And I think what he did, his exact tweet was something along the lines like, oh, you know, there, there's a small possibility that there's something more to this. And, you know, that's an example of, you know, uh, like you said, an a elite, an influencer, whatever, basically leaning into the amplifying disinformation without themselves putting, putting themselves out there or taking, let's say defamation liability on themselves. People, exactly. people like Ted Cruz did the same thing, right? Like, or, you know, they do this with the vaccines. I see this all the time because I follow the right wingers like, Oh boy, another, another person dropped dead on inex- inexplicably. Well, yeah, he, somebody dropped dead inexplicably. That kind of, that does happen medically. Um, you know, people do have heart attacks and other things, um, but they're signaling to their, their their base without saying it that this may be a, a due to the vaccine.
0: Yeah, they're giving their followers permission to go down the conspiracy rabbit holes and like, oh, there, you know, there could be more to the story. Let let me do my own research and find out mm-hmm. what other stories there could be. Um, my colleague Jen Merchica, uh, who's a professor at Texas A&M, has a great book. Um, it's called Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Wow. And she goes through a lot of rhetorical uh, devices that, I mean, she's looking specifically at Trump, but many of these other people have adopted them. One of them that's my favorite, which I learned from her, is called Paralypsis. And it's basically saying something, but giving yourself enough cover that you did a lot of people
1: believe like that thing, a lot of people are saying
0: well kind of like i'm not saying that you know there was a relationship here but i mean there is more to this like Mm. so like you know you give yourself enough room that you know plausible deniability but you're also kind of giving the wink and the nod to what it is that you're communicating and and your followers are completely receiving it Um, so, you know, Donald Trump does this a lot. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's worth understanding that. And then the other piece, and this is a little bit of a carryover from our previous conversation is this idea of dehumanization, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, at some level, this is really about dehumanizing a political opponent and suggesting in some way that they are deserving or brought upon themselves the violence that, you know, that, that they experienced. Um, and just as another book to throw out there for our listeners, I'm, I'm listening right now to the book, How Democracies Die. One of the things mm-hmm. that they talk about in terms of big red flags that your democracy is on the decline is the dehumanization of the political opponent, um, in in a lot of different ways, and I think we do need to understand this That's narrative about Paul Pelosi in those terms, and it's really really disturbing.
1: Yeah, I I find that so interesting to hear you explain that kind of intellectually from that from that perspective because I see that in real time. Like I follow some real, like right wing influencers like Jesse Kelly who will constantly talk about like war and murder of the libs sort of thing. Like basically, the, we're not human beings; we're the libs. And we basically are subhuman and worthy of destruction and there's a coming war. We have to destroy them, imprison them, whatever. And it is, it's very scary to see that. And I think, um, that is exactly what's happening here. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a huge problem for our society. I have to say, I don't have a lot of solutions here. You may be smarter and have better solutions than I do, but it's just very problematic for me to see, when I see you know actual facts come out and just completely disregarded by folks, uh, and really not mattering one way or the yeah. other.
0: Yeah, and, and 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 just to be clear, that dehumanization, you know, is is what motivated this uh, this attacker.
1: Mm-hmm. True. Yeah, he, he, he wanted he to destroy. Yeah. He
0: was radicalized, and so you know, I think that in many ways, this whole Paul Pelosi incident is. One manifestation of a larger phenomenon that I think we can understand – a lens through which we can understand things like January 6th. I mean it's mm-hmm. – when your enemy is not human, when they're completely illegitimate, then anything is justified in terms of defeating them.
1: It's interesting because I will say one of the other i would say disinformation points on the right was that the attacker was really a lib sort of thing to use their language. And you know, I mean, this was really some left wing, you know, radical. And it's interesting. That's the same thing that they did with January 6th. Like, Oh, it's Antifa. There's this, there's this narrative, you know, that on Fox news and elsewhere where it's like, hey, Antifa is coming to get you. Uh, and, and yet, you know, right wing violence, which is, I, I it appears to me to be more extreme. Uh, I'm not an expert on it, but it appears to, there's certainly like uh, January 6th. And this is are certainly touch points of right wing violence. Uh, Kyle are Rittenhouse. Ignored. Yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse are not only ignored, it's sometimes celebrated. I mean, I have seen some people on the right say, and I thought this was an interesting comment. I saw, like, hey, Kyle Rittenhouse, I'm not he, I'm not saying he was guilty, but why are we deifying this guy? And I mean it's interesting because he is very much a celebrity now in right-wing circles. He's and Ashley money. Babbitt is a martyr. I know. And Trump holds her up as a martyr it's unbelievable
0: yeah um and just uh that's how democracies die by daniel zeiblatt and steven levitsky highly recommend
1: very interesting all right asha so um before we go um you know, we were talking before we started recording about the fact that I'm half out of breath because I literally just came from a difficult workout. Uh, I'm trying to move back to working out in the mornings, which I think is, is the better way to do it. I, I am not nearly as successful when I work out later in the day.
0: Really? So tell, I want to hear more. So tell me more about your whole workout thing and how you got into it and all this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I, so for most of my life, I was very morbidly obese. Like when we were in law school, I was over three hundred fifty pounds. I was like, I think three sixty eight was maybe my peak, something around there. Uh, I think was exactly about three sixty eight. So I I lost a ton of weight with a personal trainer uh, back in late twenty twelve, early twenty thirteen, and um, it was like very intense. I would work out every single day, sometimes twice a day with him. Um, and that was just, I went from like super unfit to like super fat, like, you know, And, and what
0: made, motivated you to do that? Like, did you just wake up one day and say, I'm going to do, I mean, cause that's a lot of willpower.
1: Yeah, no, and discipline. It, it was really, um, I had wanted to, I think one thing that people don't understand is that if, if you're somebody who's struggling with obesity, it's actually like you want, you don't necessarily want to be unhealthy, but you actually don't have the knowledge or the capability to do that. It's like much more difficult than you might think, you Mm -hmm. know? And so people are like, oh, just don't eat, you know, stop eating so much. It's like, for me, I was, I had had that weight for my entire life. And so I could eat what a lot of people ate, maybe more than most, but it was, I had already had like so much weight that like, I'd had that my entire life. And so Mm -hmm. it was actually, I had some really bad trainers before then. I wasn't, I would lose like five pounds a year. Um, and then I lost with him, I think 110 pounds in nine months. So wow. it was in, in, intense, but he's just like, we've got to go. You know, he inspired me, encouraged me. Um, you and know, did he help
0: you with nutrition too?
1: Big time. Yeah. And I didn't understand, you know, what people are really into now, like this sort of low carb thing. That was really what, Mo was big for me. And he explained all that to me at the time. Like I didn't understand my, my prior personal trainer was telling me to carb load before workouts, which I now have to do. Cause I have a, a disease that I, I, I have to do that. But I, at the time, like, obviously that's counterintuitive, like eating, eating lots of carbs before I'm working out, I was gaining weight. Uh, not, mm-hmm. not, so I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but so I was in that routine until I moved out to the suburbs, I was working out with him every day for my, uh, for years. Um, and so losing him was hard. I I've definitely gotten out of shape, uh, since I've moved out to the suburbs. So I'm with a new personal trainer now and getting back into it. Um,
0: that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I feel like the Trump years really threw me <laughs> off my game. Um, I, I think I, I used to, I, I was pretty active, um, you know, went to the gym. I, I've i always been a generally good eater. So I didn't, you know, have a lot of problems. And plus, you know, my kids, when my kids were little, you just are burning a lot of calories, to be quite honest. <laughs> and you're like slapping yeah. your, your children around and walking up and down the stairs and doing all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, the, the Trump years um, was sort of this weird perfect storm of, both my kids getting older, I'm not carrying them anymore and doing all the running around and stuff. Um I was drinking more. Uh, I mean, no. my alcohol consumption went up precipitously, I would say, and at least like definitely in the first couple of years to the point where I was just like this is not good and I, you know, would go just dry for periods of time because I just didn't want to feel like that was a big part of it. But then I also wasn't working out. As you know, we were doing a lot of TV and yeah. stuff and that's all weird hours and going and so all of a sudden I realized that I had gained a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And combined with the fact that I was also now in my 40s and my metabolism was slowing down. So I you know had to really focus on much more about what I eat, um exercise, cutting back on alcohol, um All of these things. And, you know, I've I've gone on Weight Watchers a couple of times because that's helped me track my food and um, really be much more mindful about what I'm eating. Um, But so I'm I admire I mean, and just the fact that you were able to do that and lose that much weight, which I completely get the level of discipline that that would require to do.
1: Yeah, it's hard for me. One thing that I haven't been able to do because I've never been normal. Uh, in terms of having like just growing up and having a normal weight is I've had trouble being in between. Like I do very well with hard lines where I have like very regimented food. Like I'm eating the same things every day. I'm always having, you know, oatmeal for breakfast. I'm always having (laughs) chicken and salad for dinner or whatever. Uh, Going from that to like being in between that and like just gaining a lot of weight by not eating well. And it's just partly I was raised in a culture and in a household where, you know, my family was obese and we were eating, uh, lots and lots of, you know, carb heavy foods. I'm Italian. And my mom's an amazing cook who's won lots of cooking contests and stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, that's been an, that's, it's always been hard for me. So it's just a struggle.
0: Well, I'm impressed at, uh, th- that you're back in your training regimen um I'm trying to keep mine up. I I were I've realized that I work out that I can work out at the end of the day. I have to get my writing done at the beginning of the day because otherwise uh, um, that's I just don't have the energy to do it. So um we'll we'll check back in on both of our progress. Sounds good.